Oh, yeah. Get some of this in the immortal words of Anderson Silva, head of UFC 168. I back. Trust me. I back. Endless Corner with Brian Campbell is back and back in a big way with the MMA edition this week. And like the UFC's Just Bleed guy, we are juiced to the gills with an injection of that performance-enhancing audio. You know the drill. You don't need to notify USADA that you're listening to this one because just like the glory days of Pride, Strike Force, and your local Planet Fitness, this is a judgment-free zone. And after a slow start to 2017, it was really the UFC that was back in a big way this weekend with a loaded UFC 211 card from Dallas that delivered really from top to bottom. So who better to break it all down with me along with the current state of where the UFC is at than for my money, the finest feature writer in all of Miss Martial Arts. He's a columnist for MMAfighting.com, a weekly panelist on the MMA beat, and a contributor to The Ringer. I was also once an editor of his for a short spell back in the days in the Boulevard of Bristol. Here's a man who never half-steps because he's not a half-stepper, Chuck Mindenhall. Chuck, that's the longest intro for a man of your stature. How is it? I wish I had recorded that. I guess I'll have to listen back to this, man, but uh, very flattered, and thank you for having me on, brother. Chuck, you've been called the man in a hat many times, all right? I've spent time with you as a civilian around, around different parts outside of cages, You've got more pieces of quality headwear than Tom Waller has weigh-in costumes. So I got to get the inside story, the exclusive on In This Corner podcast. I've got to get the history of Sir Charles and the Kangol collection. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what do you want to know? I mean, how many you got? Where did, where did it go back from? I mean, this is an iconic piece of MMA merchandise at this point. Uh you know something, man, these little, like, kind of, you know, driver caps, I don't know, I just, I picked one up one time before an event, I couldn't even tell you which one, actually, I think it was the Memphis one, and whenever they were out in Memphis, when Rampage was supposed to be out there, and uh, BJ Penn was fighting, uh, I picked one up, and I wore it to the event, and for whatever reason, people started identifying me right away, like, like the hat, whatever, and pretty soon, it became my staple, I don't know, man, just kind of took off from there, I believe that's really the origin of it, um, but I've always loved ball caps, and I've always, um, you know, I've always, I've always been wearing caps, man. Plus, you know, I got don't have a lot of hair, of hair up there, so I got to <laughs> keep the sun off of that, you know. So there's a purpose, you know. There, there's a method to your madness here. But it, what's the go-to one? Let's say it's like UFC 500, and you got that front row press credential, and you're going to be that like prime John Morgan spot on your TV set. Which one are you grabbing? Well, if it's 500, you got to go to a top hat or something, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Honestly, I don't really put that much thought into it. I feel like people put more thought into it for me than I do. But uh, I just kind of grab one and make sure it doesn't stand in contrast to the rest of my clothes or something. But uh, I'm pretty easy going with it, man. And um, But I do have, to answer your first question, I probably have about a dozen of them now. I might have more. They're kind of mm-hmm. lying all over the house here. Well, we dig deep on this podcast, Chuck, so I went even further. I crossed in- into the lines of good nature, got a little bit too personal. I did you a favor and looked up the origin of your surname, Mindenhall. So let oh. me educate you here for a second. I might, I might even get borderline medieval on you. According right. to the... Yeah, according to the surnamedatabase.com, Mindenhall derives its name from a pre-7th century old English. Not the malt liquor, but what the meaning here is at the middle hall. The world hall, in this case, H-A-L-H, has a meaning of the secret place. Now, Chuck, I thought that was apropos this weekend with, with such a good card. 
Because not only are you hiding a secret place underneath that hat of yours, but we talk a lot on this podcast about that secret place inside of all of us fight fans. We call it the feel spot on the show. Very simple question off the top. UFC 211, did it activate that, that, that secret place, that feel spot inside Big Chuck? Wow, man. You're good at this, Brian. I, I, you know, I would say that, um, I got a little bit of that with Frank Yedger. Uh, given, given his circumstance when he was coming in here, for, uh, there was a lot of people talking about this being maybe a changing of the guard type situation, him being kind of a veteran and the sport has been around and Yara Rodriguez coming up and people kind of, you know, you're really thinking big things are coming for that kid. And to put on that performance, man, um, just dominant, couple of 10, I mean, they would have been, you know, 20 to 16 in that, in that fight, uh, before he finished it up and everything. Just a crazy fight, man. And then, you know, knowing his story with his coach and training partner, Nick Catone and all that stuff, man, I would say that he, he kind of gave me that, uh, he, he activated that feel spot you're talking about a little bit, man. Uh, and it just tells you on guys like him how, how deep the layers really go and what motivation and, uh, you know, all the types of motivations that he takes into a cage like that. So I'm, I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to say Frankie on that one. Yeah, no question about it. That was, that was a heart tugging moment. I think the, the card as a whole, I mean, it just got me fired up as a, you know, put the journalist aside, whatever that word means, just as yeah. a MMA fan again. And I think, you know, if I'm looking at the, the seven biggest takeaways from this card that we're, that we're going to hit today, that we're going to look at, I think number one for me was the UFC started acting like the UFC again. I mean, it just felt, like, it was a loaded card that delivered, but it just felt like raw mixed martial arts again. And, you know, you had a really uh, fine column this Monday on MMA Fighting sort of summing that all up. And what you sort of said that is, quote, this is what the sport is all about. Questionable taste, deceit, public conf- <laughs> confessions, and ass-kicking and pending, end quote. And you were summing up what was a wild Friday leading into a Saturday card that delivered. But, Chuck, we know... It hasn't been a glamorous first four months to 2017 for the UFC. How important was this card to sort of come come through and deliver top to bottom with all of the shoulder circus content that came with it and sort of make you feel like a raw MMA fan again? Yeah, man, it was I thought it was very important uh, going into this, all of this, really, because if you could look on this particular fight card, I didn't want to talk about it, to be honest, because. I didn't really want to jinx it, man. I keep getting accused of jinxing these cards, uh, like the uh, Nermaga Madoff fight that was supposed to happen with Tony Ferguson. I started, I wrote a couple of columns on that, and then uh, obviously we saw what happened. The whole, that fight backs out, so I didn't really want to get, I didn't really want to look it in the eye, you know what I mean, kind of heading in. But it was, um, I thought it panned out really, really well, considering that there was a lot of depth on this card. I think it was about seven or eight deep, where there was really big intrigue to the fights. You had a couple of guys, you know, you had David Branch coming back over, um, you know, after after his stint with the World Series of Fighting. I thought that was kind of a cool thing uh, to see him get back in there. But then you had those top four fights, man, where you have two title fights. You got, you know, Maya in a stay busy fight against Masvidal and, you know, that stylistic matchup there. I thought all of them on paper looked good, but it's rare to get everything to pan out kind of the way you're thinking, um, you know, the way you think it it could. And this one did, man. It, even the Alvarez Poirier fight, uh, it, it was a crazy barn burn. The narratives were changing and everything before the, uh, the controversial in there and, um, you know, the no contest and all that stuff. But that fight was turning out to be a classic, you know what I mean? And that was on the heels of uh, a couple of other really nice fights. So I thought that this was like that card that the UFC has been, you know, in desperate need of, not just name wise, but it had the feel of an event and had the kind of circus atmosphere surrounding it they kind of pin that whole like here's our summer lineup they brought in all those people in they had a couple of belts on display i just felt like the 
it had a vintage feel of all the all the cool elements. And uh, you know, and it kind of showed you their depth. And and one other, one other thing, I thought that it kind of like brought up a couple of new rivalries. You know, just through that whole um, that press conference, there was some pretty good heated moments. Um, that you know, I would I I probably wouldn't have thought twice about Kiesa's fight with uh with Kevin <laughs> Lee, and and now that's a fight to think about. So I mean, the, the, I thought all around from Friday through Sunday, we we saw a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, I mean, we saw coming out parties. We saw really, you know, heart t- touching stories, like you mentioned with Edgar. We saw some of the circus quality, the controversy, and specifically that Kiesa Kevin Lee moment that you mentioned. Yeah. That gets me because oh, yeah. I love this one. Story. Right. One, that's how you sell a fight. Number one, you get people to care about two guys, usually through some rock, you know, controversy, some trash talking about the moms, whatever. But it's sort of like, don't put a lipstick on the pig that is MMA, right? Like there's only so corporate you can push the UFC. I love when you get back to a raw moment like that of just testosterone trains colliding into each other with some trash talk around it. I mean, again, like that's what you want as a fan, like no doubt. Yeah, people get very confused as to why they're into the sport. I think the one thing when I sit down and I'm writing these things, I always try to remember that you got to kind of embrace the madness of it, right? Like the fringe element, all the weirdness, the anti-PC stuff, the rock and roll flavor. I think you got to really put all that in there, and that's what makes it fun. And I thought the UFC has done a very good job of straddling that line. You know, if they want to skew it to say – Hey, you know, this is a sanctioned sport and we don't have any serious injuries. And, you know, that, that, this, they kind of present it one way with a, with a, with a bow on top for the, for the casuals. That's fine. But I think anybody who really watches the sport, you kind of embrace the warts and all the weirdness that goes on, um, and appreciate it at some point because it's not, it's not an easy gig for any of these people, um, to get up there and not just perform in the cage, but even in the lead ups to these fights and, generating i mean you know i don't really feel like too much is manufactured um these days but some of it is and some of and when it is manufactured it feels very um it feels very you see through like you can you can see through it so there's a lot of organic flavor coming back into this and i i like that like just bad blood feuds you know john jones cormier all that stuff i think you got to really embrace it man and especially in those types of feuds where they're kind of bringing up their own personal lives and um, it just goes that deep. It becomes a vicarious kind of rivalry for, for fans to, to live through. And I, I think that that's, you just, I, I honestly believe you got to get behind all of it as a whole if you want to be happy in the sport as a fan. No doubt. You, you also said in your story, quote, this was the weekend that the promotion woke up from its deep slumber. And I, I think that's really spot on because, you know, it, it's been a mini hangover in the first four months. Naturally, coming off of a record-breaking run in 2016, the ownership sale, Connor becoming an Uber star. I mean, just there was so much going on. But there's natural reasons why they sort of come back and came out flat. You know, you had the overloaded cards to end the year last year, leaving you sort of thin. And I think, you know, majority of the stars not in play for the first half of the year for, for a multitude of reasons. But overall, Chuck, there's also like this general unhappiness from fighters these days. They're just not as willing anymore to bail out the company and sort of accept, you know, be dictated which fight to accept at the last minute. And I think that played a big role in seeing some sort of empty looking cards to open the year where it's not just, hey, let's let Lorenzo make a phone call. And and this guy, maybe out of fear, maybe out of respect for the brand, isn't just going to, you know, take this fight on short money against this big name. I feel like that's been a big factor in sort of. The, the the idea that this is a new UFC with new rules under the new ownership. Do you think that's yeah. overblown? I mean, it's been it's been weird, man. Um, and I think you're you're dead on right about like they they loaded up the New York card, the first New York card, like we knew they would. But I think that they 
it really did come to the, um, to the detriment of kind of these cards that came after it. This first half of the year was really a perfect storm of, uh, you know, certain athletes, like obviously Ronda Rousey losing. She's kind of gone from the game right now, and we don't know if she'll come back yet. Um, you know, Cyborg was who, who were, we've been kind of waiting to get in the spot, wasn't ready when they needed her for that. Uh, for the main event for UFC 208, they end up making this ridiculous, you know, featherweight title. I mean, you could go on and on. I feel like one absurdity opened up two new ones in each case. It was like you, you did one thing and then there was some other crazy thing would come of that. And it was like then they had to kind of dance around some other weird thing. It was just a bizarre time where the new ownership hasn't really come out and embraced uh, the fans or the fighters, you keep hearing them talk about um, just how anonymous this the situation is being. They, there's a figure attached to the top now where people see four billion dollars. That becomes a that becomes an issue for fighters and the price you know price fighting game. They want a piece of that pie, and I think it just it really has started to go a certain direction. I feel like you're more of an outlier right right now, or at least heading into this weekend. If you're not chirping in the media about how, you know how you're not getting things right or they're not promoting you or, you know, you're not making enough money and all this stuff. I feel like these days the the state of contentment that we got used to for all those years during the boom period, the pretty much a decade um, from 2005 to 2015 ish. And you didn't hear a ton of complaints, man. There might be the, the, the occasional person would come out and say something. And, um, but they were the, they were the exception. And I feel like now you're getting into a situation where most of them are fairly vocal about their careers and, you know, where they feel they're being wronged and everything like that. Put that with the new ownership and just, I think that you got, I think the new ownership's going to have to start to embrace the sport more and show the fans too that they uh, love it like the Fertitas. And obviously, or they, at least they appreciate the sport on the level that we thought the Fertitas did. You know what I mean? Like, cause I think that that was the connection between fans and ownership that played through the whole thing. And that's right now point. that's, yeah, right now we're completely devoid of that. Yeah, and I think the silence from the new owners is just really odd, and it's really telling, right? It almost feels like, like you know, it's sort of, we, we talk a lot on the boxing side, the premier boxing champions launches with Al Heyman in 2015, but he still doesn't do interviews, so there's still a, a wall of silence. And I think that a lot of times when you don't hear something good or bad, you, you tend to assume it's nefarious of what's going on behind that wall. And I think that's an issue for the new UFC owners. It's like, hey, call one press conference. Just come out. I don't even care if you come out in black suits and NWO style and you and, and you act a little bit cocky and arrogant. Just come one time and connect with the common fan, the common journalist. I don't think that that you owe the journalists that, but I think even more you owe it to the fans to build that connection with what you said. It's just weird, right? It just doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, I mean, that... I've said this, you know, the whole time. I just feel like any any kind of public um, acknowledgement of the sport with the fans, uh, you, you know, any of that would have just translated so well. I just I feel like we just got into the state of pending on that, uh, you know, waiting for something to happen. And and to the, to the point now where the fighters, when they start to complain and everything, you do assume the worst. You assume that they don't care. You assume that there's a change in philosophy. Uh, you assume that the, the money, it's more money, you know, it's, uh, we're not delusional and think it's not money driven, but you feel like it's solely money driven rather than about the athletes and the growth of the sport. And those things really add up to something toxic in the end. And I feel like that for those first uh, four months, you know, 2017, all the way through April, I, I really felt like this, this was a heavy, a heavy thing on the UC. I'm sure it's, it will, st it's still going to be there. Um, there's so much to sort out and there's all of this stuff we're talking about has not been addressed, but it was nice going back to, you know, this last weekend, it was nice to have that diversion and kind of feel for a minute, 
that that it felt like the old times, you know, like there was it was a nice deep card. There was all kinds of stuff going on, and it was it was nice to put all that aside and just focus on the fights again and the and the people in the game. Look, look, success and victory always covers up other sins. And in this case, as a UFC fan, success of good fights should should be the primary headline. The fights yeah. and the fighters, not their complaining behind the scenes. So my biggest takeaway, number two of the week, Chuck, is really the top headline that came off of 2011 from inside the cage. And that was UFC heavyweight champion Stipe Miocic knocking out former champ Junior Dos Santos with one punch in their rematch. We know, given sort of this wild history of the heavyweight division, that this victory means more historically than it probably should, right? You're, you're tying that, that scarlet letter, that vaunted record of the, of that second title defense, that, that the, the hurdle that no one has been able to clear. And I know we bring this up constantly and it's constantly part of the lead in stories whenever there's a heavyweight title fight, but it's really ridiculous, Chuck, that no one's ever gotten past two title defenses in a row. Like as much as we know why and how, it's yeah. still ridiculous in, I think with Stipe, you do have to look at the hole, and the hole is telling you that since that first fight against uh, Junior, it's been five straight wins, all by knockout, all impressive now, all against top names in the division. So you can't knock his credentials just because the history of the division hasn't been strong, but you do have that lingering question of right now, how much of his success is how good he is, or how much of his success is the the constant wild nature to this division? Yeah, I think you're 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 right on. I mean, the one thing I would point out with Miocic especially, because if you go back to that first JDS fight, he took a ton of damage in that fight. Um, and then you watch a fight like that, like if you get two or three of those in your career, I just feel like you're taking years off, maybe not just your career, but possibly your life. I mean, those are those crazy wars, and JDS has been a few of those. Um, and just you know that perseverance to even be in the position he was in this one. Um, you, it's it's a it's a butcher shop, man. I, I just I feel like that that uh, that record of two is has been glaring. I remember you know back when you were at ESPN, doing the ESPN things when you were an editor and all that stuff, and I was there writing the rankings. I remember talking about Stephen Miocic in the rankings and always thinking this guy will be he's he's the one to look out for because uh, you knew that he he was a good boxer. He had the wrestling. Um, he was athletic. He had all those things. You knew he had some power. Um, but I, I didn't know if he would get to this point where he's at right now. And in part because he's minimized the damage he's taken in these last five fights. The one thing is he's doing is, uh, you know, he's picking his shots really well. He's been able to get these, these victories, lay out the damage and not take as much. And I feel like that's, that's the big difference between maybe like a guy like Cain Velasquez or, um, you know, some of the other guys that we were looking at as, uh, as whom, whom basically is tied with now on the historic record. But, you know, how long that continues, when is, you know, who knows? I mean, the next guy could catch him, and that could be the, his downward spiral. It's, that's the nature of the division, but I think he's definitely put himself in the position where he's playing it smarter. Um, he's using his skill set, I really believe. Like a lot of these heavyweights, you don't see them getting better so much as just persevering, and I feel like he's getting better. So I think he's, um, it's, it's been fun to watch him, and, uh, it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he kind of emerges as a star in the sport, given that he doesn't have the charisma of some of the other guys, but he does have the, you know, he's an action fighter, he's a knockout artist, so I feel like that should translate fairly well down the run here. Yeah, and I want to get to that that sort of matchmaking element, you know, or the, the marketing element in a second, yeah. but I thought you, you made a good point, because my knee-jerk reaction was almost to say, hey, we didn't learn much from this fight, and we really weren't supposed to learn that much, because... 
it was kind of lazy matchmaking in the sense that you're booking this fight because, you know, Junior was the last guy to beat him, even though Junior yeah. really, you know, a little bit of a fool's gold in how he outboxed Ben Rothwell for five rounds. Quality win, but, you know, we know he'd been trading wins and losses for years. But I thought it was key what you did point out of of how much this showed Stipe's ability to minimize the damage, obviously comparative to that first fight where he'd never gone five rounds before, where he really matured in front of her eyes in the cage. That is obviously key to put on this kind of run in a heavyweight division when you cannot get knocked out at any point, really against somebody who's not on your level. It's just the nature of the of these beasts, the nature of the, of the four ounce gloves. So if we did learn from that, that's fine. But for me to begin to stamp on him any sort of you know he may be the savior of the of this division rather than just its next squatter, he could get three, four title defenses. But my problem is until he goes in there against a you know, 75% healthy Kane, it's going to yeah. be really hard to give him that full stamp of approval because this should have been Kane's decade. Like, we right. all know that. It's just a bunch of bid, of bad luck rolled together, injuries, all that. Are you in my camp where it's sort of like slow the roll on on, on putting him up in the in the suite with Randy Couture and, and Fedor and any, you know, any of these other greatest heavyweights? Like, we got a long way to go. I'm in your camp in terms of, I think that we always tend to be, you know, we, we, we tend to throw out some hyperbole based on everybody's win and then we move on and we just keep, I, I always feel like that's a, you gotta be cautious with, um, you know, dishing out praise and these historical, you know, proclamations of these guys doing these things in general because we've seen, you know, Ronda Rousey's a prime example. You just see how fast things can change and then how glaring um, you know, parts of their game become. And I, I will say this. I think that Stipe Miocic is, um, he's, he certainly demonstrated a lot of the, the tenets, I guess, that you could, um, you could look at and say he's, he's a really good fighter. Um, he's, he's knocked out some guys, like you said, a couple of them, you're like, well, you don't know how shot they are in general, like how much they still bring. Um, he's still got guys on his horizon, like you mentioned, Cain Velasquez, I think is, to, in my mind, Cain Velasquez still strikes me when I think of the heavy, like a, a great heavyweight champion. It's him. It seems like he was ransacked more by injuries in certain circumstances than he was in the cage. Um, so I feel like he's still, you know, the guy in a, in a weird way. So I feel like maybe after they cross paths, um, you might, you know, maybe then, maybe then you could start to call Stipe something beyond the heavyweight champion. Maybe you could start to call him something more historic, you know, like, I know people want to want to say it, you know, that he's like, you know, people would just want to basically heap the champion up with, you know, with praise in general. But I think he's got to get by somebody like Kane, you know, and then after that, we'll, we'll talk. And there's a couple of other. Fortunately, right now, there's a couple of other guys finally coming up in the heavyweight division because for years there just wasn't. You know what I mean? So now now it's fun. Um he could have a sustained, you know, a sustained run and there could be some fresh names coming up to challenge him too, which could make, which could change everything as well. And it's hard for me to criticize, you know, use the term lazy matchmaking when there are some up and coming guys, but the cupboard may be temporarily bare on like who's the, oh, he's got to fight that guy next. Because as much as you like a Derek Lewis or you like a Francis Ngannou, it feels like they're a few steps away, right? From that, from let's say being fully deserving of that title level. So if you're, if you're, you know, Sir Chuck Shelby, who, who, if I'm putting your mind together with the great Sean Shelby, who are you carving out next for him? Man, that's a good question, man. Um, I still think, well, first of all, it seems like Stipe himself wants to take a little time, uh, out, which is never great news for people who want to like see the momentum keep going. And, uh, you know, there's some, there's some cards coming up that would be fun to see him on. But at the same time, 
if if they could do the Cain Velasquez fight, I mean, I'd I'd be all for that. I mean, I, to me, that just makes the most sense in terms of like two guys. You know, obviously Stipe being in the position he is, and Kane, I just feel like he's he's been cut short, you know. And I feel like he's a guy who deserves it from you know having the, having had that same record of two defenses and some of the big fights he's had. So I just feel like maybe that's the one to make. Because after you get kind of beyond that a little ways, honestly, if you, I, I don't really care about the rankings that much, but if you look at the rankings, I think uh, Francis and Gano and Lewis are the next guys below like JDS and the, you know, the guys he's already beat. So either you're going to, either you're going to trampoline one of those guys into a shot prematurely or you give him Cain Velasquez and, and you do that one. Yeah, that would, that would fix all, all the issues. Now the issue with the potential of him being marked, you know, not being a, a big marketing draw, is interesting, Chuck, because he's got so many of those positive qualities that we would want out of a heavyweight champion, out of a, you know, baddest man on the planet, if, if that's still, you know, if that still means something for somebody who's the heavyweight champion. You know, the power in both hands, he's exciting style, willingness to fight through his adversity, like we saw against Overeem, got the blue-collar attitude, the clean image. I mean, he's a, he's a good guy outside the ring. He's a really nice guy to interview. But he's missing that gene, and it's not a new headline that he's missing that gene of not being able to sell himself, but I think... Even if you don't have that gene, even if you don't have the McGregor gift for gab, you still have to fake it. And I felt like he really dropped the ball on Saturday yeah. night after this win, both in the cage later on FS1 when they kept pushing him with the same question is, what do you want to do? Who do you know, who do you want to fight next? And it's, you know, it's cute when he gives you that answer of, you know, I, all I care about is remodeling my kitchen. I mean, it's blue collar. <laughs> the guy's a paramedic and a firefighter, yeah. but he looked and sounded like a paramedic and a firefighter. And by the way, when he was on Sports Center this week and they've sent him, the UFC has sent him to UFC, to ESPN a bunch of times now to push that brand out there. You know, he's dressed in a nice cute suit with the bow tie, but that's not the baddest man on the planet, Chuck. So yeah. I don't care if somebody's writing him his lines like we thought they did for Gennady Golovkin for a stretch when he was saying all that cute stuff in broken English, but he's got to come out and say, hey, Kane, you know, get healed, big boy. I'm coming for you. You know, when you're ready, we're going to really figure out who's the man. I don't care how cheesy it is. How do you drop the ball and just be like, I don't really care who I fight. I mean, it sounds like yeah. it sounds like when these bo- when these boxers are like, you got to talk to my promoter first. Stop it, man. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%, man. I think it was Bill Parcells, the coach back in the day, who said something along the lines of, uh, you know, it, when football players are coming up, you know, it, it's, you know, at one point when they're, he was talking about, he was making a comparison to dogs, I think, and he said something like, when they're puppies, you know, if they bite, you know, they're going to bite when they're, when they get older. And I think it's one of those situations where, you know, you look at him and you think, he's never had that, He's never had that um, that gene to sell a fight. He's never really been interested in it. It's just not part of his personality, and I don't think he's going to learn it. Um, I think it's just going to be one of those types of situations where as long as he's on top, um, this is what we're dealing in. Uh, I agree with you. A, any kind of strategy would, be, would make sense. Um, Do you know what UFC is missing, Chuck? I'm cutting you off for one second just to say UFC is missing the the pro wrestling element of the the manager. You give a guy who can't talk but has the great look and and can deliver in the ring a a tested veteran who can do do the interviews for you, can be your hype man. Maybe UFC should adopt this, right? I thought about this before. I I think I was talking about – it was with uh, Aero Hawani one time about this on uh, on the show, but he was – I think I think so too. Like, <laughs> like give him Matt Sarah for a couple, you know, for for media day. Come on. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would make some sense. I mean, honestly, like it, it could make some sense. I obviously it is a uh, we've seen it effective in pro wrestling, but for these guys who just can't advocate for themselves, what's the next logical step? I mean, the bottom line is 
even if he doesn't mean it, you know, there's the people who figure out the game don't know you don't have to be completely sincere in your approach to what you're saying on the microphone. There's ways you can use the mic to manipulate the situation to just get to where you want it in another way. I I feel like none of that has occurred to him, all the nuances of um, how to play the media, what to be saying. He, he's not formulating um, anything in his in the back of his mind, um, you know, to kind of to push it forward. I just think he's I don't think it I don't think he he's wired that way. But um, I, I I honestly, man, like he's a he's a tough one. I was trying to write about earlier for the ringer going into this fight, like, you know, what he would have to do to become a star. I don't know if he'll ever become a star. I think what he'll basically do is, you know, he could headline. Obviously, if they do another show in Cleveland, that's perfect for that guy. But ultimately, I think he's he can be a headliner because uh, heavyweight still translates the word, you know, heavyweight. And the guys he'll be fighting will be interesting and they'll draw their own. And there will be, obviously, um, interest in what he's able to do if he's able to break the record. But I don't think it's going to be sold on his charisma, and I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you there's you can't teach somebody to threaten to eat another man's children. It's just <laughs> one of those intangibles that are not taught. But our third biggest takeaway this week, Chuck, Joanna Young Jacek, she's just she's just unreal. I mean, the fifth defense of her strawweight title, five round dominant decision over a very very game and tough Jessica Andrade. I think the first question that that, that sort of left as she closes in one title defense away for, from tying Ronda Rousey's record on the women's side of six is. Who's left at 115 that can legitimately challenge her? And obviously, we know Rose Namajunas is out there, and, that, and I want to see that fight. I love Rose. She's maturing at a fast pace. She's she's really turned things around at age 24, made a big leap against Michelle Waterson. But even after her, is there a challenge out there at 115, or, or does it come in that rematch between the, the last two people that she defeated when when they meet on June 3rd, when it's Gadeha and Klobukiewicz? I mean, is there yeah. anyone else out there? Not really, man, because, I mean – you know, for just a split second, somebody like Michelle Watterson might be, you know, being groomed to get up there. But um, obviously, that's not going to happen because Rose Namajunas was able to get by her. Um, there's people like Tisha Torres. I just think that she's got too many shortcomings. I don't know. You you have a pretty big, a pretty big gap between the the uh, the top of the division right now and the rest. And obviously, like somebody like Claudia Gadelia, who's um, who's given her pretty good fights, and that first one was really. Obviously, really, really close. Um, that's about as close as you get. And it's, it's almost like the Demetrius Johnson situation where, you know, Joseph Benavides, say, or guys like that, you're like, wow, they're, they're, they're destroy everybody they fight, but they just can't get by Demetrius Johnson. And I feel like we're getting into that realm a little bit. There's still a little bit of fresh blood up the top. Um, you know, Rose, I would say the good thing about Rose Nami is that she's actually kind of a built in star as well. Like they've been behind her promoting her. Um, kind of coming up through her ranks, you know, with the tough 20 and all that stuff. So that's going to be a good fight. I still think, like, it's weird, though, because you watch that fight with with Joanna and you think it's going to take a Herculean effort. Somebody's going to really have to be able to take away her strengths to uh, to compete with her, and I'm not sure Rose will be that person. Um, but I, I will say that I'll be intrigued. If they make the fight, I, I'll definitely be intrigued by it because I think Rose is still growing into her, you know, into who she's going to become. Um, it just would suck if it's too soon. Like if she, if she gets destroyed in that first one, it just puts her down and you're not sure if she'd ever get back out. And then beyond that, man, it's either Gadelia or uh, maybe Carolina, Carolina, or I don't know, man, after that, I, I wouldn't even want to see the Andrade rematch to be honest. Cause she just no, couldn't no. figure out a way to, she couldn't even, she couldn't figure out a way to make it competitive. It was just, uh, you could, you could admire her courage in trying, 
but that was about as far as it went. So um, I think it's probably Rose, and then and then it's a coin flip between Gedalia and, and Carolina. And I think on Saturday, you know, Andrade was close in that first round, but once you want to make those yeah. adjust, adjustments, once she figures out how to use her speed and her tactical advantages, it, it's the end of the game. And I think, you know, as good as Claudia did in that first fight against her, when the fights are five rounds, it's another ball game. Because even in that rematch, Claudia really pushed her over those two rounds with with, with the great wrestling. But it's like, who's going to go the distance and be on Joanna's level? Like, Carolina probably came the closest, had success in those late rounds, still couldn't get yeah. over that hurdle. It's really tough because I don't think there's anybody, you know, anybody who has that kind of cardio or anybody that has that kind of will. Because a week ago on this podcast – I was lucky enough to have Rashad Evans on and, and really go deep with him. And he talked about the mindset of a fighter. And he said, you know, we both agreed that what Ioana's doing is setting herself up. If she can continue this run, maybe move up in weight, which we can talk about in a second. She She's setting herself up to be considered the greatest female fighter in UFC history. If she can, you know, potentially retire unbeaten and do all accomplish yeah. all the goals that she wants to do. But he thought what she's doing from a preparation, from a mental toughness, from a willingness to spill more of herself inside the cage than any of her opponents would be willing to do. He's comparing this to like the kind of rarefied air that it, it goes beyond genders. Like she's building a foundation that could allow her to enter into discussion as literally the greatest fighter of yeah. all time because those intangibles are so much stronger than anyone else. I mean, do you think that's crazy talk? No, not at all, man, because – you look at the escalation of her career, um, I think that that's what you're seeing. You're seeing somebody who is so – in general, when we're talking about some people who uh, are on streaks or they're, tr- they're trying for greatness, there's words like complacency and things like that that start to seep in because the game starts to come a little too easy or whatever. I just don't feel like she'll ever have that. It's not part of her fabric to be like that. Um, she's made – I was I was looking at uh, our boy Brett Okamoto's piece um, – today that just came out and I was like, you know, it's, it's interesting. Every time I kind of read interviews with her or get into her mind more, you realize just what a competitor she really is. And it sounds cliche, man, but I, I really believe she is that she's a literal competitor, um, through and through. And, you know, it's funny, man, I, this is the rare sport where women were, you know, brought in and we, as a, as a fan base took to it right away. It's, um, it's an interesting thing because, but, it's also interesting in the sense that, you know, Veronda Rousey, if you look at her as the groundbreaker who got the, you know, the women into the UFC, how she did it, you know, it was kind of like this berserker mode from the get go, throw, throw somebody down with the judo, you know, use the judo, give them the ground, <laughs> arm bar, boom, boom, boom. And that translated very well, obviously, for a lot of reasons. We were talking, we we're talking about Mike Tyson and everything, just how quick she disposed of people. This is completely different. And she is so technically sound. I'm talking about Joanna. She's so technically sound so rhythmic in terms of like how she finds it you can just see her find her rhythm and lock in and hone in and she never she never stops the rest of the fight um it's just to me that's the type of thing you look at and you think it you're right there is no gender anymore it just becomes a it's a it's its own beauty it's a, it's part of the fight game it's like it's figuring somebody out and dict- that dictation of wills and a one-on-one circumstance and all that it has nothing to do with being female or male at that point it just has to be uh, with the dominance, and I feel like she's certainly on the right track, man, just watching these last, uh, really since she's come up. I mean, you could go back to that Carla Sparza fight, and just the way she was able to shut her down and put her into an existential kind of <laughs> crisis, right? <laughs> what to do. I, it's been fun to watch her, and the fact is she is getting better, and I don't, I, like I said, man, I don't see who's going to beat her, you know, just looking at the ranks right now. I don't know who the person's going to be to beat her, but she's going to make everybody better. And that's something you have to consider in something like this as well. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I see elements of GSP in terms of the preparation and mental toughness in here. I see, I see some of the elements in John Jones where no matter what you give her, she'll have one extra gear to come back over the top of you with that incredible backbone. But to get to that level of surpassing Rousey and being considered the greatest female fighter, it may take the move up to 125, which she's talked about, yeah. because if she can add the, the, you know, the glamour of being the first woman to win titles in multiple divisions, I mean, that obviously looks great. Retiring undefeated would look great, but how do you think she competed at 125? I mean, we know she has the background of that weight of kickboxing, but we don't know how deep that division would be. We don't know what kind of names are there. I mean, is there the elements of potentials for trap fights? If you get a, if you get somebody at 35 who can come down and make the weight, somebody who's established, do you think there'll be depth there to make some fun fights? Yeah, I think so. I think that would, uh, I think that that's the one good thing that could happen and will happen is Joanna will be, will be able to at least be given the shot to tie the record and break the record in the division she's in right now. And you still got, like we just mentioned, roses there and there's a couple of, you know, they, they could run back a rematch with a uh, Carolina or something like that. And, uh, and who knows? She could have that record. But then as the, as the, um, as the other division gets rolling, you know, flyweight division, you've got some, you, you know that there will be plenty of crossover from the people who are competing at bantamweight that are, you know, too small. And then some of the ones that are, that are too big for straw weight, including Joanna herself, I, you know, somebody like Valentina Shevchenko, you know what I mean? I feel like there's some, there's some nice, um, there's some, there's some good potential fights for her if that happens. And honestly, at that point, I think that we'd be welcoming it because I'm not sure who else would be in her current division that's going to challenge her at that point. So I think it'll come at just the right time when, when she's ready to, uh, to switch and, and try for that other belt, you know, once it comes and it's there, there'll be a couple of people lined up that'll ha- that'll have that intrigue that can make 125. And Chuck, I think the only thing left to debate coming out of that fight is where do you put Jessica Andrade's marriage proposal in the pantheon <laughs> of all time from a surprise moment? I mean, this may have been up there with, you know, Ahmad Rashad surprising Felicia Rashad live on NBC that one time. I mean, so, I didn't see, I didn't see this coming. You? Oh, I didn't see this coming. I mean, I don't know. I'm always – these things are so weird. Who, who who else did that? Somebody did this recently. It was a Benson Henderson, right? He he proposed to Yo, his – you're uh, right. Yeah, he did this. I don't know, man. I I, I suppose it's a cool thing. Um, but well, weird coming off a loss, though. Where, coming, where off it's, loss, you know? coming off that, Coming off that loss in a, such a weird um, – such a weird fight in terms of I don't know to me that was kind of a weird a weird thing I wasn't expecting it 100% but at the same time hey more power to her because you know it's it's always in um through thick or thin or whatever and and she, here she wasn't thin after getting beat for <laughs> for five rounds <laughs> and, uh, making that proposal I guess that's uh you start with a with a low right and then you can only go up from there it did sort of add to the you know, she came off you feeling good. Hey, you gave a great effort. You never quit, which she didn't. So it, you know, it was a nice, nice positive to spin off of that for her. Sure. I think she'll be back. I think she'll still be doing both, damage in this division. A lot of fights. JDS. Yeah, both her and JDS were so gracious in defeat. It was uh, that was another thing that was kind of cool about the card. I felt like, you know, your your two challengers were just so like professional about it, and so uh, you know, we'll get back on the horse. Yeah, it's, that's always fun um, when people aren't you know sore losers. I guess you know what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. Transitioning to the fourth biggest takeaway is something you mentioned off the top was Frankie Edgar just absolutely destroys Yair Rodriguez. And this is one of those great crossroad fights on paper. Welcome to the deep end of the pool, Yair. And, and guess what? You ran into a shark. And I mean, incredible that at 35, Frankie's going to put forth such a relentless performance that left no doubt. There's no whispers that he's going in the wrong direction. But the only issue moving forward is 
He's been so deserving in this in this sort of how he's recharged himself and moving down in weight. In late in careers, not a lot of guys have success, right? Moving yeah. down in weight, staying at that title level over a long period of time. If and he addressed this himself, if Jose Aldo defeats Max Holloway on June third at UFC two twelve, promotion probably not that interested in running back a third fight with Frankie, considering how wide he lost their UFC two hundred rematch. Only two losses for him at this weight class since coming back down of Ben to Aldo. Will he be once again the guy on the outside looking in if it's Jose Aldo making another victory? I think he will because um, it'd be one thing if the fights with Aldo had been, you know, really good fights. But I just I don't really feel like people talk about those fights all that much. Um, they just they didn't have they didn't really compel going in. They didn't compel you going out. It'd be a very hard sell, I think, to say like you're running back a third one, even though he, I think he would be deserving, obviously. Um, I think he's got a root for Max Holloway in the situation to get it done. Um, because obviously that, if Max is the champion, uh, it's, it's just a no brainer, right? You could give that, that becomes a really, a really nice fight in the featherweight division in my mind to have Holloway against Edgar. So that, that to me is the route for him. Um, but it's also very interesting because if he can't, like, let's just say that Jose Aldo does what he's been doing except outside of uh, the McGregor fight and just gets right by Max Holloway. I would like to see Frankie Edgar consider that bantamweight because he talked about this before. But if he wants to do it, I, I think is even though it's really, really, really stacked division down at 135 right now, I feel like he could go down there and uh, and and create havoc. And I think he could get to a title shot probably sooner than he could at featherweight. So it'd be it, impressive it, to see a guy three different weight divisions yeah. at essentially the highest level. I mean, one hundred percent. 100%. So, I mean, to me, that's compelling, and I know he can do it, you know, because you, even looking at the size discrepancy between him and Yara Rodriguez, I was like, you know, when they're, when they're squaring off and everything, you're like, how is this guy fighting it? <laughs> you know? So, I, I know he can make it. I know he knows he can make it. It's just a matter of, does he want to make that leap? And I think he wants to exhaust, um, every possibility of getting that title at, uh, at featherweight. And so I guess we'll have to see, but I wouldn't be surprised if he makes that leap if, uh, if Aldo continues to win. You just feel bad in the sense that he was always that guy in the bullpen for a while in the Connor sweepstakes, and he never was able to cash in. You feel like he got a raw, raw deal or just wrong place, wrong time, whatever. It's a raw deal for sure because I'm, I, you know, out in Vegas, it was like there was that three fight card, you know, that three fight card um, event that they had going on, and Edgar went in there and smoked Cub Swanson, and everybody was like. You know, including Dana White is basically saying, "Okay, you're you've got it. It's your title shot." And by the next night, after McGregor fights, it's over. He's not getting it, and you know he's moving out of weight. And it was very, uh, very easy to see the frustration from Frankie Edgar, who had that fight for 24 hours, even though it wasn't signed. He he was under the idea that he was next, and then you know before he could even really let it set in, it was gone, and it has never come back. And, I, th- you know, we've seen a couple of these types of belts in play, and I think the Michael Bisping one is kind of like that. You know, once once somebody, once the wrong person gets it, or once the per- you know person with some kind of sway gets it, they can just kind of drift off with it in a different direction that uh, typical meritocracy or these other c- contenders don't understand. Um, and I feel like that's one of the situations with Frankie. So he got the raw deal. Um and I mean, he still got the Aldo title shot. I mean, it was still something, but... Yeah, it was like, you know, and that's the good thing. I guess in some ways when you look at the interim titles, and I know people are like you know, like to hate on them, but in that situation, um, given that, you know, McGregor was not going to be defending it, I thought that that was the right call. And that but the exactly reason why Edgar can't get another shot against Aldo right now. Um, it, just, it just wouldn't make sense yet, you know, just given that they just fought for that title. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. Our, our winding down here, our fifth biggest takeaway was a big one for me. I was fired up watching it in not a good sense. It's the fact that Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier in that lightweight bout that, that really would have been a co-main on any other card this oh, whole year yeah. started to give you that almost round of the year potential around two. They're heating up, and then we got yet another fight. Falling apart with with the knees to a downed opponent rule, it's like Musasi and Weidman all over again from 210, but it just, look, Chuck, it's the bigger problem overall of, like, the differing rules from state to state, from commission to commission, maybe just the fact in general that when people play the game with the crouching over with the hands down and the kicks to a downed opponent... It just exposed that there's a lot of things that need changes. I mean, even your buddy Lorenzo's texting Dana <laughs> in the moment saying, hey, I think you guys should should fix this up. What do you think is the most logical fix to this and then the overall problem with the commissions? Well, yeah, you know, for Lorenzo was talking about instant replay. I think that that would be something that needs to be investigated at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of crazy that it's not there already. I think that... You know, that's, that's one thing that you could always look at and it just erases the benefit of the doubt. It just erases all doubt from a situation. This is one of those weird ones, man, because Texas, you know, abiding by the old rules, right? You know, we're only five months into the new rules that certain states have, have adopted. And it's just one of those situations. Um, you know, Herb Dean being a veteran is right there in the action. And I felt like you had three different versions of what was going on at the exact same sequence because I think that, um, you know, Eddie Alvarez, I don't really know what was going through his head, but, uh, he didn't seem too hesitant to, to, I, I mean, I, uh, you know, he didn't seem, none of it seemed like there was hesitation going on in those shots. It just seemed like Herb Dean was like, okay, wait a second. He's got the hand. He was processing the situation. He was talking to them and it's, uh, it's gotta be very confusing. Imagine if a football was contested under different rules, depending on what city you're in. I mean, it's just, I feel like it's that's ridiculous. Yep. I mean, it's come ridiculous. on, like this, there's they too much at that. stake in MMA. It's not like this is a 16 game, 162 game season, right? I mean, there's a lot more at stake physically and in terms of financially in these type of fights. Yeah, yeah 100%, man. And I felt, you know, you, you feel bad in a fight like this particularly because, and, and, and that Weidman, you know, that Weidman fight, although I thought that fight was a little more one sided. This one was interesting because, you know, the, the tables were turning. Um, and that was that's what was crazy about the fight, and so it had cha- it had a chance to be one of those fight of the year type things because it, it, once the tables turn and everything starts to change, and these guys are just standing in each other's wheelhouse defiantly, you know, hacking away at each other, th- those fights become classics, you know. And um, this one was well on its way to doing that. Who knows how it would have actually panned out in the end? But uh, you hate to see where a situation like that occurs, and they, uh, you get basically a um, a buzzkill at the end of a fight. Like that, and neither guy can be happy. The fans can't be happy with it, and you know, the only silver lining is, that I guess, they can run it back again and do it again. But you know, it's just it's not much of a silver lining in the moment like that. And I just, I do feel like they have to, uh, they got, they got to change some things. At least it was talked about this time to the point where you real, like, you think, okay, UFC is ready to at least try to take some steps to get this rolling again in some right direction or get 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 everybody on the same page. If nothing else, I think that they have to start it. And, uh, and get the commission, you know, the commissions have to then get behind it and everything else, but instant replay and getting the rules the same in every venue, I think those two things are going to help. Yeah, and I don't see how, even in the moment, how that's not a loss for for uh, Alvarez, given those rules. And I felt like it was just a negative performance for him coming off the title loss. He sort of went in the negative direction. We know he gets beat up early in fights and comes back. I mean, that, that had been his calling card coming out of Bellator, but... Ah, uh, didn't feel like the stock was trending upward, Chuck, you know, for him coming yeah. out of this. Still got yeah. a lot more to prove. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I will say this. He was getting beat up, like we said, uh, in that fight. And it was like the shades of the Michael Chandler, <laughs> that first Michael Chandler fight <laughs> or something, when he started firing back because you just think that he's on his last legs. And then to see him kind of battle back, I thought he, um, he reminded us, I guess, of what, you know, what, what Eddie Alvarez's chin is like. And I thought that that was, uh, that was fun just seeing him like that, that kind of spirit he brought back to the, to that fight. Cause I, to, from my angle, man, it looked like he was done. I thought he was, I thought he was going to go out, especially coming off that loss to Conor McGregor the way he did. You know how these guys, a lot of times in a, in a follow-up fight, once they start getting their chin tested, it just, it's not the same, um, after a big knockout, especially a big spotlit thing like that against McGregor. So. Yeah. Kudos to him, man, for, for like at least battling back in that fight. All right. Before we close here, two more. The big takeaway number six for me, Chuck, was, you know, we mentioned Conor McGregor. Uh, let's just put all the cards on the table, all right? Because Dana started to talk in circles about this Mayweather-McGregor <laughs> thing, and it's sort of touching my field spot, the dark's field spot on the inside, which is the fact that I buy every conspiracy theory that's – a lot of feels going on here, all the feels. I, you know, I'm a conspiracy theory type of guy. I, I sometimes have sort of these initial negative thoughts like, hmm, what's really going on here? Look, here's what's really going on here, Chuck. Dana never, for obvious reasons, never wanted or really tried to do the Mayweather-McGregor fight at all. And that's obviously my take, but that's what I believe. There was some lip service there when he pulled that 180 turn and said, yeah, Connor's done a lot for me and the company. Whatever it takes, we'll do it for him. Well, hey, Dana, you came out this weekend again. You said, well, hey, this Sunday, after I finally finalize it with Connor, I'll go talk with, with Floyd and Al Heyman. That's, you just told us a week ago and a week before that that you already finalized it with, with Connor. I mean, like, it's a big charade and it's a big circus here. He doesn't want the fight. He shouldn't have any reason to make the fight. And by the way, going to sit with Connor, I'm sorry, to sit with Floyd and Al Heyman, that's not a one day operation, right? And that's also not a fight. That's not yeah. a fight you're going to win. And, uh, you know, no. to make matters even worse. We don't see this fight in 2017, Chuck. That's the bottom line. And Dana, really smart in the way he handled it. Well, it'll be interesting, man. I mean, they, like you said, the word circus, I think that that's really the the issue because you have two, if you're just dealing, if you're just dealing with McGregor and, May, and Mayweather, you're dealing with two sizable egos from different sports. And I think that, you know, you've seen how hard it is to get Mayweather, you know, Pacquiao and all these things. Like, and you're, you're trying to be complicit with your guy and to help this thing happen, but I feel like there's, there, I just don't see it being seamless. Um, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I don't see it being a seamless transition. And the bottom line is this, UFC, obviously, for them to, uh, to go through with this, they're going to make out on this, um, on this deal. If it happens, they're going to make a lot of money, more than they would in any given bunch of pay-per-views that they could put together. But it's also, it just, it starts, I don't know, I, 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 it, sm it smacks of a scam in a weird way because I just, the more you, the more you think about it, the more you're like, is it worth all of this hassle to do? I mean. It's like prostitution of MMA in a way though. Is that too strong? It just feels like why? No. It's just, it's just, it's just weird, right? No, it is. It's really weird. Um, and I, and I feel like it's only going to get weirder because <laughs> they kind of meet with these things and, and, uh, you know, meet with, uh, with Mayweather's guys and everything. It's just, I, I feel like it's going to get more convoluted, more crazy before it starts to become clear. And who knows if it ever does. I, people have asked me a lot, does this fight happen in 2017? I think that I, I could see a scenario where Conor McGregor is basically, you know, fighting in the UFC this year, but I don't really see the boxing thing yet. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but this is just not how it has not traditionally been a very simple thing to work out, even with boxers, much less this crossover type of fight where you have a third party promotion like UFC basically right. um, 
taking cash basically, you know, to be part of the promotion. It's just a bizarre, it's a bizarre setup. It's a, it's a fight that I know will be very intriguing if it happens, but man, I, I just don't care about it enough in the, in the, in preview and prospect to have to go through all the circus tricks to get there. So I'm kind of exhausted by it. If they make it great, but I'm kind of with you on that, man. I, I don't know if it happens in 2017. No, because look, the, the, you mentioned the third party promoter. Floyd's legacy is more from a financial and winning the battle at the negotiating, ta- negotiating table than even more than his unbeaten record. And he's, made his legacy off eliminating the middleman. He's made his legacy off of yeah. essentially being his own promoter, like, you know, hiring promoters to just do a small, small portion of business for him in name only, and then he reaps the overall rewards. Unless Dana's going to come in there and say, yeah, we're fine with this small amount, it's just not going to happen because they, Floyd doesn't deal with third party. It's just such a headache that if you're going to believe what I believe, which Dana never had a never had a thought into wanting to make it work, then he's doing the right thing by stretching it out, knowing it's going to hit a wall when they talk to Floyd. But yeah. final takeaway for the weekend, Chuck, is really that UFC announces the action-packed summer. We knew it was coming. Looks like a fun set of events coming up. The two big landmark cards in July, the, the fight, 213 fight week, the DC Jones 2 later in the month, late July in Los Angeles. What's the 213 main event going to be though? Is that looking up to be, looking to shape up to be Bizping versus Romero now that the, uh, now that the GSP equation has been removed? Is that really, because that's a loaded card no matter how you slice it, yeah. even without that fight. True. Um, I mean, that's that's what it sounds like to me, but I, I really truly don't know, man. Like, to me, the Yoel Romero thing is just there, there was a little bit of an order restoration in that sense because all of a sudden we're like, okay, we're not doing the GSP thing. Um, it's a little too far off. There's just uncertainty to do it and all this. And I'm like, you know, Michael Bisping should be challenged by the guys who are already at the top of the division. So I'm all for it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that should be the fight. Um, I don't know how much, though, that really will truly resonate in terms of um, intrigue, ultimately, because, I, you know, Yoel Romero, I, first of all, I don't think Michael Bisping is, the, is as big of a draw as some people do. I, I, I feel like he's a, he's a, you know, he's he's obviously been around for a long time, but I also think that we, there's, a, there's a consensus that he's kind of moonlighting with this thing right now. Like, he's just got, he's got the belt, and he's kind of out, out on, on a lark with it, because Nobody expect him to have it. Now, now he's in a situation where he's going against a guy who people will think will beat him. And I, I think that will be the intrigue to the fight. I think that that will be the selling point, but, um, I think they would have to kind of do what they did with this card and have it, you know, have it basically be very deep to, to make that fight a cherry on top. Well, if they get that fight as the main event, you'd have three title fights. You'd have Garbrandt, Dillashaw. You'd have Nunes, Shevchenko, two. Lawler, Cerrone, Verdum, Overeem, three. Pettis, Miller. I mean, that's a loaded card. I think you just sell the depth there. And then you have to package the the July 29th one with DC and Jones with a really strong co-main. And if that's Cyborg Durandome, hey, right? Hey. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'm all for that, man. If we can find uh, if we can find Durandome. Has anybody seen her? No, I mean, look, it's not too late to say we made a mistake with that 145 division, right? Just pretend it never happened? Come on, yeah. it's not too late, right? It's not too late. That's, that's the direction I would go. The okay. only other wild card is, I thought Tyron Woodley was training for somebody secretly. And now yeah. suddenly Damian, Damian Maya wins at, at UFC 211, and, and he's sort of unofficially given the next title shot. Do we just wait a few months more then for that fight to happen? No clue, man. I just hope that they actually give it to Damian Maya after all this, because... I feel like now we're all just kind of bobbing along to his um, 
his career. <laughs> we cannot get that shot. So it's one of those things. I hope that they just honor it. And honestly, man, who else is out there? Like it's one of those situations you think everybody knows that that's the guy at this point, you got to do it. And plus I, I like that. I like the fact that he's a jujitsu guy and he's that, you know, sublime at what he does, bringing in against a guy like Toron Woodley, who has a lot of, um, you know, a lot of power and he's, he's got his wrestling and everything. To me, that's an intriguing matchup and let's just hope it happens this time. And in credit to the UFC for removing the GSP Bisping scar, which was hijacking that division, which was sort of perpetuating everyone's anger. And every two days, every website had another headline of this guy went off on this podcast. Great to hear that they pulled that apart. It'll really open. Maybe that's just Dana and GSP never really getting along. Maybe he was angry by GSP having the nerve to put out that video saying, hey, October at the earliest. Like, come on, yeah. guy. Come on. Who, who, what are right. we doing here? Right. You know, but hey, good news all along. Be one thing if he's dictating terms in the welterweight division where he ceded the belt, walked away from the sport, and now he's returning. Okay, that would make sense. But to 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 do it at the middleweight where he's never fought, that's the big problem, right? Like you can't you can't hold up a division and dictate terms for the champion when you've never even fought in the division. That's it's just a, it was a disconnect from the get go, and uh and maybe it's for the better that he came out and you know made it very clear as to when he wanted to fight because then we can get things rolling again. Absolutely. And we got things rolling on this podcast, Chuck Mendenhall. It was a real pleasure to chop up 211 and beyond with you. Thank you so much for joining me here, bro. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Where can they find you? Where can the people, if they heard something <laughs> and if they see something, they want to say something, where are they going to find you? I'm in Connecticut. Yeah. Knock, knock on that door. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, man. Just my name, Chuck Mendenhall. One of the, the finest, best. if not the finest, MMA writer in this in this whole globe. All right, I'm putting you right up there on the stand. Thanks for joining us. We we, we mixed it up here. Be sure, listeners, you know you got the MMA edition this week. Be sure to check out our weekly this week in WWE hit later this week with the boys. And you know, until then, I just I got two words for you. We out.